Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily's The Sidebar, taking you inside the courtrooms of high profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based here in Los Angeles and previously in an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. We are recording this on Friday, August 12th, 2022. In this week's episode, detective testimony in the trial of Paul Flores, who stands accused of the 1996 murder of Cal Poly freshman Kristen Smart, as well as a break in the Nicholas Cruz death penalty hearing as the defense presents evidence to the judge presiding over the case, plus the capital murder conviction of former FBI's most wanted fugitive Yasser Saeed for the killing of his two teenage daughters, and finally Scott Peterson's bid for a new trial after further allegations of juror misconduct. Today, we are joined by Julie Rendelman, a former homicide prosecutor, criminal defense attorney, and legal analyst you can find on the Law and Crime Network, as well as many other media outlets. Julie, welcome. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, good. We have two. Uh, before we jump right in, could you tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and what your current practice is? Okay. Um... Uh, I was a prosecutor with the Kings County District Attorney's Office for for, for longer than a decade. Um, I was a deputy in the Homicide Bureau for many years. Uh, I left there, um, I think, I'm not remembering anymore, but I feel like it's been seven years and have since then opened my own firm. We focus on criminal defense, mainly occasionally some family law um, but we really stick to criminal defense. Oh, fantastic. Well, these these cases are going to be right in your wheelhouse. So we're looking forward to your thoughts on them. Uh, our first case takes us to Salinas, California, where the murder trial continues for Paul Flores, 45, and his father, Ruben Flores, 80, who have been charged with murdering Kristen Smart and concealing her body. Kristen Smart was a freshman at Cal Poly when she disappeared in May of 1996. Her body was never found, but she was declared dead in 2002. Paul, charged with first-degree murder, and his father, Ruben, charged with accessory after the fact, were arrested in April of 2021. The trial, which is slated to last until October of this year, has seen multiple delays, most recently this week when the case was delayed for an undisclosed juror issue. An alternate was sworn in to sit on Paul Flores' jury, and the case continued the following day on August 10th. The jury heard testimony from Lawrence Kennedy, a former Cal Poly police detective 
who was one of the first to interview Flores after Smart's disappearance. In the interview, Paul alleged that he arrived at the party where Kristen Smart was last seen after Paul had been drinking in the dorms. According to the detective, Paul had scabs on his knees and a black eye during the interview. When questioned, Paul claimed he was playing basketball, though Paul's own subsequent statements and other witness testimony have disputed this. A former San Luis Obispo County Sheriff detective also gave testimony regarding forensic searches of Paul's dorm room. Unfortunately, the search wasn't conducted until the room had already been cleaned out by janitorial services. Okay, Julie, let's first talk about this bruise because I have an opinion on it, but I want to know yours. How crucial do you think that is as far as evidence? I think it's a big piece of evidence. Um, you, you're, I assume you're talking about particularly the bruise to the eye. I know that there's yeah. also a bruise to the knee. And I, I think at the time he had said that he got the injury from some during basketball. Um, it sounds like there's other witnesses that will be testifying saying that he they played basketball with him and he had no such injury. Um, and so the question is, well, how would he a how would he have gotten the injury if not for basketball? And B, why would he lie about it other than if he got it from some type of altercation potentially with the victim in this case? Right. And he knows why he's being interviewed. And why are you why is this bruise something that you need to lie about? Right. If it is if it isn't somehow connected to the reason you're being interviewed. Um, the, the other thing, and, I, and tell me if you've experienced this or your thoughts on this, but Jurors, jurors love to hear something come out of the defendant's mouth, whether that's the defendant testify, whether that's the defendant uh, giving a statement to a detective or, or, or the defendant talking to someone else. And if that somehow shows them to be a liar, I feel like that really kind of cooks their goose. You know what I mean? It's like you may be doing well with a case, but if it turns out that guy's lying about something, it's almost like that's enough for them to hang their hats on it. Have, has that been your experience? I, I mean, Josh, think about it. There's a reason that we tell our clients not to not to say anything, no matter what it is. Um, right. You know, we tell them, keep your mouth shut because the most innocuous things can get them in trouble. And so I, I want you to think about what this case would look like had he never said a single solitary right. word. We would right. not be here right now um, because as far as I'm concerned, half, if not more of the prosecution's case depends on the lies he told and the inconsistencies. And so, yeah, you know, when you have especially a case this old and you have the jury hearing that at the time he told various inconsistent stories, the jury is brought back to that time period and asking themselves, why would this young man lie if he was not involved? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I tell all my clients, I don't care. I don't care how innocent you are. The police are not looking to help you out. OK, they are looking for you to mess up on something and to trip you up on one little detail. And that could be a detail that's totally unconnected to what it is that they're investigating you for. But if that comes out that you lied about something, it you're done for the juror. Jurors don't like liars almost as much as they don't like murderers, you know what I'm saying? It's like that, that could be enough uh, in this case. And I agree with you. It's funny because um, sometimes the lie is what gets them convicted, even though the, the reason that they lied has absolutely nothing right. to do with the crime. And, and, yeah. and, you know, it just kind of goes along with what you were saying. Yeah. The same with, with clients who want to take the stand and, and, and jurors want to hear from them. Everybody, every time you do voir dire, Every single juror says, well, if I was innocent, I would want to tell everybody about it. Right. 
But you put somebody on the stand and you put a, a, a experienced prosecutor cross-examining him and you trip up on one thing or one thing sounds evasive or you sound confused about what you're done for. They've heard from you. You've you, you you're accused of this crime. They've heard from you. They think you're not telling the truth and therefore you must be guilty of whatever it is you're accused of. No, especially. And in, in, in even though the burden's not on your end, it becomes right. the burden suddenly switches, even though legally it's not supposed to. hundred percent. I, I remember a very experienced prosecutor uh, when I was in the DA's office and the defendant would testify. I love this. The first thing he would ask them when he got up to, to question on cross-examination is, you have anything else to say? This is your time. And he would take a step back and just go, tell us everything you want to hear. And the defense attorneys over there losing his brain because here goes their, their client with no kind of script and no game plan. And they just start talking and he just let him, let him, let him get it all out because he was just going to rip them apart for everything they just said. It was, there, it was pretty incredible to watch. There's, there's nothing better than a, a, as a prosecutor than a very, very chatty defendant. On the <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, let's talk about the, the forensic evidence in this case though, or, or more importantly, the, the lack thereof there's, there's no DNA though. There's signs of what they believe to be blood in very important areas but there's no hair fibers, fingerprints, carpet fibers. Is the the lack of forensic evidence of this in this case going to be a problem for the prosecution? Absolutely. You know, remember one of the it's a no body homicide case. And I hate saying this is the benefit. Um, but the fact that it happened so long ago certainly lets a jury know that this is not someone that fled. Um, because if they had, they would have been seen by now. And so at least it establishes, at least to the jury, that this person is no longer alive. But obviously, anytime there's forensic evidence that links to the defendant and potentially his, his father to the case, it's going to make the case stronger, especially because it's been so many years. I mean, I know that there's discussion, there's evidence, I think, of cadaver dogs. You know, I'm a I'm a Brooklyn girl. We, we've never had cadaver dogs on any case. So it, it's a really? little... Um, n- not once ever um, have huh. I ever had a case. And so I'm always fascinated when we follow these these cases um, where a lot where a lot of the evidence is these cadaver dogs that sniff, you know, the the human remains. And so it's something I, we've never used that evidence. Um, and so I find it a little um, I'd have trouble as a juror. Um, using that evidence because it's not something I'm as comfortable with. Um, And I I think it's going to be a big problem for the DA um, in in terms of establishing that he is the person that killed her. And by the way, you also kind of have to prove potentially how she died. Was it an accident? Was it intentional? And when you don't have the body and you don't have any blood or DNA, it's harder to prove how this person died. Yeah, absolutely. It's first degree murder, right? Uh, you, you're right. How do they how do they establish that mens rea? If, if, if I mean, I don't know as the defense, if they're even going to go, doesn't sound like they're growing anywhere near that. But the argument needs to be made to the jury. Hey, by the way, they haven't proved this was intentional. You make an excellent point there. It's funny. Are cadaver dogs like not allowed uh, in your jurisdiction or is it just something that they don't do by practice? I mean, you know, we, we, we've had dogs um, involved mm-hmm. in, you know, like, you know, companion dogs. That's the, that is the only time I think I've ever seen a dog at the DA's office is when they were there for, you know, t- to help young victims and whatnot. Um, you know, I think we're in the city, so we're, we're not in a rural place or, yeah. you know, where they're, they're more useful. 
Um, and by the way, you remember, you know, it's not like every day that you have a nobody homicide and right. cadaver dogs really are effective or more effective in that type of case versus a case where the body is actually re- right. recovered because then you know where the body yeah, is. Um, but I, I, I don't know. Um, it was it was a new thing when I started doing legal analysis, seeing a lot of cases use, yeah. using this type of, of evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And in a case like this, where there is such a lack of forensic evidence, you could understand why they just want to use anything and everything that they can. Um, one thing I th- will say about the cadaver dogs in this case that that I think makes it a little more powerful for the prosecution is that, according to the reports I've read, they brought in several dogs. So it wasn't one dog. You can't just say, well, that dog wasn't trained properly or something. They brought in several. I think it was about four. And that they all signaled only to his dorm room bed and to no other dorm rooms. So right. it, it was almost like they ran a, you know, a, 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 a control test and an experiment. You know, they didn't signal to every bed. They didn't signal to any other bed but his. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's interesting. You know, now we have like double blind lineups. And, and one of the one of the right. questions I would ask or want to know is whether or not the handlers knew which dorm he 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 occupied, um, because that would if I was the defense, star, I'm certainly going to want to, you know, talk about that, because if yeah. they did, there could be an argument that, by the way, even unintentionally, that the dog handler could have led them to, oh, to yeah. a certain location. And so. I think, look, the cross-examination of, of any of the handlers, because you can't cross-examine the dog, um, will be um, interesting, you know, in terms of how they're able to try to manipulate um, the cross-examination to get out that there could be, could be some potential bias um, yeah. and, and whether where that falls with the jury. Excellent point. I mean, because dogs are so in tune to the body language of their handlers. That's an excellent point. If you knew that he should be signaling here, you may have even subconsciously been behaving in a way that let that dog know that was important. Interesting. Well, we'll continue to watch this and and see how it all turns out. Next, we turned to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The state has rested its case in the death penalty hearing of Parkland school shooter Nicholas Cruz. Cruz pled guilty last year to all counts for his role in the February 2018 shooting that left 14 students and three staff members dead. The jury has seen heartbreaking testimony from victims and witnesses of the massacre, surveillance footage of Cruz carrying out the attack. And finally, the jurors were bused to the site of the shooting where much of the carnage that occurred had been left intact throughout the trial. The defense has objected to the prosecution's case um, saying that it went beyond what was allowable or necessary under the rules of mitigation and aggravation. So far, all of these objections have been overruled. The jury will spend one week uh, on a break while both sides deliberate what evidence can be presented by the defense concerning the drinking and drug use of Cruz's birth mother and its effects on his mental state. Lead defense attorney Melissa McNeil is expected to give her opening statement to the jury August 22nd, 2022. I have a question about this break. You know, they just saw some incredible evidence in the form of that that visit to the crime scene. And now they're, they're sitting on that for a week. And I understand that this is a time for them to handle some, you know, motion, evidentiary motions and everything. But do you think it's going to be difficult for the defense to get back up? And, and try to present their side of the case after the jurors have had this time to kind of stew in it, as it were. 
Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that benefits them, and it's not a benefit because I, I don't, I, there's certainly, I don't envy the defense attorneys in any way, but the fact that he pled guilty already is a benefit. And the reason is, is, you know, a lot of times when you see these death penalty cases, you have defense attorneys that have to get up and first argue that the person didn't do it. And then suddenly they're convicted and then they have to get back up to that same jury and go, hi, he, he yeah. did it. But let me explain the mitigation. And so they kind of took the, the, not they kind of they took that out of this. And so they kept their credibility intact. Um, so, you know, when they get up there, they're doing one thing, trying to save the life of their defendant. Um, and they're really just looking for one juror um, to, 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 to do that. And so I think they have an incredibly, incredibly tough, tough job. I mean, you're, you're walking away from uh, after listening to two weeks of victims and their families and people who've been shot and pictures and, and, and seeing the, the sites um, themselves, the actual crime scene. So I think it's incredibly, incredibly difficult for them, but they have to stay focused on mitigation, mitigation, mitigation. And if they do that, they'll, if they can get one juror, then, then that's what they're looking for. Yeah. Yeah. What about this tactic of with, you know, saving their opening statement until their time to present their case? Have you seen that before one and two, what do you think about it as a tactic in this case? So some people, we don't usually do it where we are, um, but I've seen it a lot, you know, over the past couple of years when when we've been watching these live trials. And one of the benefits of doing that is you, you really get a chance to see what the prosecution has. And then you can, in a sense, in your opening, you're responding to some of the things they've presented, which you wouldn't have been able to do had you opened initially. And so it really gives the jury a chance um, in, in, in a way to... Uh, I hate to say it's almost like an opening and closing, but you're giving the jury what they're going to hear. And you're hoping, hoping to get their minds just a little bit off of what they've heard before. And that's a perfect way to do it. Yeah, I've seen it before, but only in cases where the defense is not quite sure what the prosecution strategy is going to be or how the how the case is going to play out. And maybe they kind of want to reserve their arguments for later to address all of that. But I'm wondering if here knowing that the jurors were going to hear weeks of testimony that is just so shocking and so awful and so emotional. If they just thought, if I say something at the beginning, they're going to forget all about it by the time we get to our case. And and maybe now it's like their opportunity to kind of reset and go, listen, like you said, he's pled guilty. This is all awful. But now let's talk about him as a broken individual and and whether or not he deserves this you know greatest penalty we have in this country let's talk a little bit about their their defense it sounds like part of it is going to be if the judge allows it for evidence of fetal alcohol syndrome uh do you think that's a compelling argument for them to make i don't know i, I mean this is, <laughs> it, 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 and i and i say that because you know look i, I my opinions of, of death penalty aside, um, it, yeah. this is an incredibly, the one thing, the one thing he has in a sense going for him, and I, I hate using the word going for him, but what inures what to his benefit is that he's quite young um, and that he had, it seemed to have quite a troubled childhood. And it seemed, by the way, and this does not in any way excuse anything that he did, but it does seem along the way that there were things that should have been done that weren't. 
Um, and so there is responsibility for others in terms of how we ended up here. Um, and so I think that it's important for the defense not to say he's not responsible because of X, Y, and Z, but to say he's responsible, but let's talk about all the things that happened along the way. And fetal alcohol syndrome is, is one of them. Um, yeah. And is it going to be effective? I I don't know. It's going to be interesting what the experts testify to, um, and and how strong they are in in hammering home their position uh, to the jury. Yeah, I've I've seen the defense use this before when I was in the DA's office, um, and I'll tell you, I I've never seen it be very effective. And I'm if if. If this is all that Cruz's team has in their their quiver, I I, I don't think it's going to go well for them. I I agree with you. They're going to have to have a more kind of holistic, and this should be one argument amongst many if they want to try to uh, get any chance about saving him. Now we turn to Dallas, Texas, and we're talking about Yasir Saeed, 65 years old, was convicted of capital murder for the killings of his daughters. Amina, 18 years old, and Sarah, 17, and what has been widely reported as an honor killing. Saeed's daughters reportedly went for a ride in their father's taxi on New Year's Day, 2008, before their bodies were found riddled with bullets. Sarah made a call for help before her death, but both girls were dead by the time police arrived and located their father's cab. Jurors heard audio from that 911 call where Sarah named her father as the killer. Prior to their deaths, the girls and their mother fled their home in Dallas to escape Saeed, allegedly after Saeed put a gun to Amina's head, threatening to kill her. Prosecutors allege that Saeed was unhappy with the dating practices of his daughters who didn't agree with his strict cultural practices. Saeed, who spent six years on the FBI's most wanted list, evaded authorities for over 12 years before his arrest in August of 2020. Saeed claimed he didn't kill his daughters and that he had fled his cab because he feared someone was following them who wanted to kill them. He further alleged that he didn't turn himself into authorities for fears he wouldn't receive a fair trial. Saeed's brother was convicted by a federal jury and sentenced to 12 years in federal prison for helping to conceal the fugitive, while Yasir's son pled guilty to the same charges and received 10 years in prison. Just an awful, awful, tragic case. Um, the defense in this case, Julie, argued that there were no witnesses, there was no physical evidence, there's no surveillance video. But Julie, there's a 911 call from the victim naming her father as the murderer. Was there any way the defense could have gotten around that? No, <laughs> simple answer. I mean, they tried yeah. to, they tried to basically make it sound like because she, I believe she was shot at the time that therefore she didn't really have the ability cognitively to, to express what was really going on. Um, but th this is what we call a dying declaration, someone who's going to speak out. And when you speak out, the argument is when you speak out before you die, you're going to tell the truth uh, because you want that person held responsible. And so her last words uh, were to make sure her father was held responsible for what she had done to her and her sister. Um, yeah. So I don't think they had any way of, of getting around uh, that incredible testimony. Yeah, it's so funny. We learn about that rule in law school and it's always hypothetical. And you, you talk about it. It's one of the exceptions to hearsay. Um, and I don't know if I've ever seen it in practice. I, I don't know if you have. Have you? 
you know, I tried, tried what well over 50, 60 homicides. So we did see them. Um, we actually also saw them on attempted murder cases. We had a one time as a prosecutor where she had been stabbed. We believed she was going to die. Uh, she believed she was going to die and made a statement uh, saying who had done it. Um, and, and she was right. And he was convicted. So yeah. it, it does happen. You know, it happens and not, not always so frequently. Right. But, but it's incredibly powerful. I mean, I can't, I can't, I, I agree with you. I don't think there was anything the defense could have done here unless they found some sort of evidentiary loophole to keep that tape out. They had no case. Um, when you're hearing literally someone speaking from the grave, telling you who killed them. And then just the tragedy of it being his daughters. And it's just horrible and horrible and awful. Um, tell us a little bit, though, about the the importance of the evidence that he fled and how that's used. It, it, you know, it's interesting because usually the law, certainly in New York, and I think in many of the states say that there's minimal value um, to give someone who flees because there can be an innocent explanation for why someone flees. But with that said, it is and can be used as evidence and certainly was evidence here, particularly because he had fled for such a long period of time. Um, and especially when you would expect someone who has children, has a family and just literally disappears off the face of the earth, um, that that is powerful evidence, particularly how quickly he disappeared after the killing of these uh, two young girls. Um, so I think it was that uh, along with the evidence establishing, you know, that that everyone seemed to be terrified of him, including uh, the, the sister's uh, boyfriend, who I believe testified. Uh, I don't know how the jury was going to get around convicting him. No, no, it, it was very powerful case. What, that being said, given the fact that it's so awful involving multiple victims and everything else, why do you have any thoughts on why the prosecutors didn't seek the death penalty in this case? We're, it, it, it is in it, Texas. It's an interesting question. And, and, and I don't know exactly why. You know, we can take some guesses. Um, yeah. And one of the potential guesses is because he killed family, there might be some expression from the family members who survived that didn't want him put to death. Um, and that to me might be, uh, you know, that you often see that in cases where someone kills their loved ones, that the rest of the family members yeah. want to go forward with the prosecution, but they don't want death penalty sought and, and the prosecutors potentially respected their wishes. Wow. I hadn't even thought of that. I, I was I was racking my brain trying to figure out because it it being such a powerful case and it involving such a horrible circumstance and, and the motivation be, for it being so awful, I thought for sure, especially out of a jurisdiction like um, Texas. But you're 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 right. I hadn't thought about that. That perhaps played a role. Finally, let's turn to Redwood City, California, and this is going to be a, a really interesting development if this uh, works out. But Scott Peterson, 49 years old, was found guilty in 2004, two years after the alleged murder of his wife, Lacey, and the couple's unborn son, Connor. His death sentence was reduced to life without parole last December when the California Supreme Court, citing jury misconduct in his trial, turned that um, sentence over. In their arguments for a new trial, Peterson's attorneys alleged juror Rochelle Neese, nicknamed Strawberry Shortcake for her bright red hair during trial, was on uh, a personal mission seeking justice for Lacey and her unborn child. Peterson's defense alleged that Rochelle intentionally lied on the jury questionnaire to conceal that she was also the victim of domestic abuse while pregnant. 
The defense cited two questions which asked, one, have you ever been involved in a lawsuit? And two, have you or any close friends or relatives been the victim or witness of a crime? Rochelle answered no to both questions. Rochelle also wrote letters to Peterson in prison, urging him to confess and expressing sorrow that his unborn child would never get to grow up. All right, Julie, give us your opinion. How strong an argument is this for Peterson's team? I don't think they're going to win. Um, I think it's a, a, a tough hurdle. Look, I think she wasn't forthright. And, and the question that the judge would have to decide is whether she intentionally lied or whether she did made a mistake in terms of what her interpretation of the answers to those questions were. And, and in a sense, she would have had to intentionally lie for the purpose of getting on the jury um, in order to in a sense, find him guilty. You have to keep in mind those letters that were written to him while we're all thinking, what the heck is she sending these letters for? Those were written after the verdict. So she has an opinion based on what what the evidence showed. Um, But I think that they're going to have a hard time overturning this verdict. That she would not feel like she should have answered these, these questions differently. But I think an important thing is there were 11 other people in that jury room deliberating. And was there any evidence that she somehow affected them? Right. And that's that's an important part of this as well. Right. I agree with you. You know, you also have to keep in mind, I'm not. And by the way, I'm not defending her in terms of because I I don't know what the right answer is. But there was a little strange dynamic because it sounds like she made up with the woman that there was a restraining order against. So she may, you know, and it was many years. So she may not have viewed it as domestic violence since there was no um, animosity between them at the time that she filled out the questionnaire. I also think it does speak to the concern I have is the lack of additional questions that were potentially asked of her and are asked in general. Sometimes there's judges that let us ask two questions of a juror and, and right. put them on uh, put them on as jurors, not knowing a, almost anything about them. We find out later right. that they had strong animosity towards one side or the other. So, it, you know, it, it's an interesting issue. Yeah, you know, I, 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 I don't know how things are done where you practice, but it's one of the constant frustrations for me is the limited amount of time that they give attorneys for voir dire. And I understand attorneys love to talk and they love to hear themselves. And if you gave them all the time in the world, they take three days to pick a jury, you know, where it should have taken them a, an afternoon. But sometimes we'll get 20 minutes to to ask questions of 60 people. And it's like, how do you how do you possibly get to know who these people are? And I think a balance needs to be found, because like you said, we don't want unfair outcomes because there's somebody sitting there that just didn't come out with a with an issue of, as to why this wasn't a good case for them. What, what has been your experience? No, I'm laughing because we've had the, the same we've had the 20 minutes with the 60 jurors where your head is literally spinning. And, yeah. and instead of being able to speak to one juror, you find yourself asking everyone these questions, um, you know, to everyone. And and by the way, it takes time sometimes for people to be willing to raise their hand because they're embarrassed. And so it's it's a look, you can't guarantee that every juror is going to be fair. You hope they're going to be honest, but we do, there should be an opportunity to really vet them, especially when you're dealing with cases so serious as homicides and potentially death penalty cases. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay. We're both in agreement that we don't think this is going to, the judge is going to decide in Peterson's favor here, but let's say we're both wrong and he gets a new trial. It'd be incredible to me. Um, 
how do you think that trial is going to differ from the first one? And I don't mean, I, I don't want you to get into all the evidence, but just the fact that you put an additional, I think it's like 20 years on it now. How do you think that affects things? Does that work to his benefit or not? That was, that was the first question I was going to ask you is how many years has it been since Scott Peterson yeah. was uh, convicted? It, you know, it goes back to the, the Flores case we were talking about earlier. It's 20 years. People's memories have faded. People's memories have changed. At least you have the prior testimony so you can use that. I also think there's been a lot of other investigations surrounding this case for the defense. And I think they would want to introduce all those things to really better try to create some reasonable doubt for the jury to think that there's other suspects that were never explored that could have done it. So I think yeah. it would look like a bit of a different trial if it happened. Yeah. I, I always say that, pro that time is not in the prosecution's favor, right? They, they want fresh memories and evidence that they still have around and people who are still willing to cooperate. And as time goes by, you know, witnesses start to forget things, obviously, or witnesses become uncooperative because they don't want to deal with this anymore. And it just never seems to be in the prosecution's favor to have this, kind, especially 20 years down the road, to have that kind of time uh, put between the, the, the crime and the, the trial. Um, but it's, it would be pretty fascinating to watch, right? <laughs> it, it, it would be, uh, it, you know, I look, I can't even imagine sitting through another Scott Peterson uh, trial. Um, right. But I'm guessing we're not going to have that uh, opportunity to do that. That's I, my I'm guess. A, and I, it I'm sounds a, like yours, too. I'm going to go out there and, and say I agree with you. We'll, we'll see if we're proved wrong or not. Anyhow, Julie, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? You know, I'm often on the Long Crime Network each week as a legal analyst, and uh, I have a criminal defense uh, law practice here in New York City. Fantastic. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or con comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar. Sidebar.